Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Shalom and welcome to the Mikra A Kodesh Holy Convocation series. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Note that all, to, uh, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary for today was updated on May 19th of 2007. The um, theme verse for the Mikra A Kodesh series is Leviticus 23:1, which reads. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Quote. Attention everyone listening to this commentary. I need to make you aware of an updated feature to the timing of this particular commentary. 2016 update. This commentary is going to discuss the timing issues surrounding the Passion chronology of the week of Yeshua's death and resurrection. I want everyone to understand that for years I asserted that Yeshua most likely died on the very same day as when the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple, viz. on Nisan the 14th, which I was figuring was on a Friday. To put this Seder meal, to put his Seder meal on the prior evening, the sunset of the 13th, as it became the 14th, eaten, of course, without meat from the sacrificial lambs, uh, is how I understood the chronology. So, uh, dying on the 14th of Nisan, which means his Seder was on the 13th as it went into the Friday before then. In this way, uh, technically, I had Yeshua keeping his Seder. I assumed it was a Chagiga. I had him keeping his Seder on the 14th, while being able to die 21 or so hours later on the day part of the 14th as well. In other words, he had a Seder on the 14th, um, at the 13th going into the 14th, you know, sundown, that type of thing. And then he died later on in the day part of the 14th. That's how I used to figure it. However, after careful research and as an update to my own understanding of the chronology of the week of Passover in which Yeshua was crucified, I've now come to understand that Yeshua was most likely crucified on Nisan 15th, which as far as I can reckon would still have been on a Friday, as I maintained earlier. This means he ate the Pesach meal with meat from lambs slaughtered the day before on Nisan the 14th, a Thursday. 
Essentially, I now hold to Yeshua being crucified on Chag HaMatzah, the day of unleavened bread, basically. So he was crucified on the 15th. So in, in conclusion, uh, for this update, I just want you to let want to let you know I still hold to a conjunction-like occurrence of Nisan 14th, 15th, and 16th all being back-to-back, i.e. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, with no days skipped in between. The only major changes to my timetable are that I now hold to Yeshua eating his Seder on Thursday the 14th. Previously, I thought the 14th was a Friday. And being crucified on Friday the 15th. Previously, I had the Seder on the crucifixion, both on Friday, the Chagiga Seder being on the evening part of the 14th, and his death during the afternoon, some 21 or so hours later, viz. the day part of the 14th. So, I hope that this updated clarification uh, does not cause too much confusion when following this commentary. Well, this is the um, commentary to the Festival of Shavuot. Its English name is Pentecost, and uh, it also goes by the name of the Festival of Weeks. Let me read a few verses to get us uh, familiar with the themes of this particular festival. The first one is Exodus 34, verse 22, which reads, quote, Observe the festival of Shavuot with the first gathered produce of the wheat harvest, end quote. And then the um, Leviticus 23 passage, let's read the relevant verses there. Uh, verses 15 and 16 read, quote, From the day after the day of rest, that is, from the day you bring the sheaf for waving, you are to count seven full weeks until the day after the seventh week. You are to count 50 days, and then you are to present a new grain offering to Adonai." End quote. And then finally, um, this verse from Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 2a reads, quote, The festival of Shavuot arrived, and the believers all gathered together in one place. Suddenly there came... And then I'll just leave off there. End quote. We are... Um, in the middle of the festivals of the Lord. There are seven festivals, not counting Sabbath. And um, they are really patterned... Um, what's the term I want to use? They are... Um, they are uh, um, we've got three on one side, three on the other side, and one right in the middle. What does that make? Like a mirror pattern if we pivot on the middle one? Uh, chiastic structure, if, if you would say, inverted structure. The three on the front are known as the spring fest, uh, festivals or the spring feasts, and the three on the end are the fall feasts. Well, the one in the middle is the one we're at right now, Shavuot or Pentecost. You know, the Torah is full of wonderful spiritual principles that are learned through everyday experiences. You want to get to know how to live for God? Just live life and hang on to Yeshua with dear, uh, for dear life uh, with all you've got, I was going to say. That's how you um, learn to walk with God. It's not by secluding yourself from a community, climbing to a top of a high mountain, um, parking yourself in the lotus position, closing your eyes, and absorbing God. That's, that's not the way you find out um, how to live your life for God. The Torah was given to a community, and the only true way to experience um, life with God is to live it within a community. That includes all of its ups and all of its downs. You know, in his infinite wisdom, Hafshem knew that we, frail men, were likely to forget many of the important spiritual principles which the teachings of the Torah freely offer to us. And so, as uh, frail men and fragile men, God himself has to um, perform a lot of the maintenance. Otherwise, we would fall off the deep end. 
And so the Holy One, blessed be he, carefully designed the biblical calendar, which is, of course, maintained by the Jewish people, but it's God is the owner. Um, this biblical calendar is to remind mankind of his place in history and to prompt him, as it were, to ever press closer in his relationship with his heavenly Father. The biblical cycle produces cleansing because of the cyclical nature. We go round and round, and this year, perhaps you're not where you need to be. But don't worry. Keep pressing in, and next year, perhaps you'll be further along than you were last year. At least that's the, um, that's the idea. That's the, uh, uh, the objective goal of those who walk out um, the cycle of the Torah and the festivals. I know it is for myself. I look back down um, past in my life, <laughs> I look. I look in my past life. That's not what I wanted to say. I look. Um, I look past or backwards into my life, and um, I'm reminded that a simple definition of sanctification, if we could just um, scale it down for maybe a child to understand, a simple definition of sanctification is simply sinning less and less. The further along I go with God, the less and less I should be sinning, and um, I'm looking for that blessed day when my uh, my flesh will take on immortality, and I can put off this sin once and for all. But until then, I press into holiness, and in doing so, I realize that it's a process. Sanctification is a process, and in that process, um, cycles bring change. And so thus, the biblical calendar um, uh, is conducive to change. It's conducive to holiness and to sanctification. And so, isn't our God wise in giving us this uh, biblical calendar. You know, even the heavens and the earth themselves, uh, the heavens and the earth, would serve as witnesses to remind uh, us, we, the people of God, of the special place that we have in the heart of our Father. Hashem loves us dearly. You can read Jeremiah 31, verse 35 to 37, to see that um, we are very near and dear to God. And it's not just a concept. It's not just an ideal. If it weren't, then God would not have invested so much in his people by giving us these special calendar days. You know, because ancient Israel was, and in many respects still is, primarily an agriculturally active piece of real estate, what better way for the Holy One to teach his children about his holy nature than through their annual harvest responsibilities? The people are going to have to sow and reap year after year. What better way to teach them biblical truths than to couch them within the language and the motifs of agriculture itself, of of, um, of sowing and reaping and planting and harvesting and and uh, and all of that goes in with that. I mean, it's a wonderful teaching tool, the Torah. And as we're going to see, this festival Shavuot, um, it's spelled S H A V U O T, and some people ask, how do you say that? It's Shavuot. Uh, it holds significant messianic truths that are pertinent to every believer today. Now, let's first start with our etymology of the word. The Hebrew word for week is Shavua. And the plural, if we were to say weeks, we would say Shavuot. Now, both of these words, Shavua and Shavuot, they come from the root word for seven, um, Shava or Shava in Hebrew. And this is where the festival gets its name, Shavuot. It is actually the annual counting of seven weeks of days, hence 49 days, Shavuot. 
and the yearly count is listed in the Torah as a commandment, as a mitzvah from Hashem himself. We are commanded to count the days between Passover and this 50th day of event. So Shavuot is not only tied into the 50th day, but it's also um, linked or connected to um, Omer Rishit, the counting of the uh, Omer. Actually, Omer Rishit is the first sheaf, and then that begins the count. You could say that the bookends are Omer Rishit and uh, Shavuot, and the, and the counting in between, the counting of the Omer, is um, it's tantamount to saying Shavuot. Now, the name Pentecost, the English title, uh, comes from the Greek word Pentecoste, which means 50 days. Uh, because we know the Torah instructed Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, to add the final day after the seventh week. So they count seven complete cycles of weeks, or seven full weeks, which is 49 days, you know, seven times seven. And then on the 50th day, we have this holiday, which is Pentecost, Shavuot. The festival is also known by a few other names, but we're going to primarily use Shavuot for this study, or, or I may just go back and forth between Pentecost and Shavuot. The Christian church is familiar with the term Pentecost because of its association with Acts chapter 2, and we are going to get into that later on into my commentary. But because of its relevance and importance and connection to Omer Rishit and to um, Pesach, uh, the season of Passover, God is trying to get us and wanted us to understand the important connection between Passover and Pentecost. There's not supposed to be a disconnect. Um, it's unfortunate that the 50 days um, distance between the two holidays causes many people to forget the relevance that they have to one another. And so what I want to do in this next portion in my commentary is I want to sew the connection back together. Uh, now that we have arrived at Shavuot, I want us to look backwards 50 days ago to the Omer Rishit, where the beginning of the counting of the Omer started, and remind ourselves of where we've come. And in doing so, we will um, draw a connection between the counting and the arrival. So this next section is entitled, Not Skipping a Beat. Again, to create a seamless transition from Pesach to Pentecost, just as the Torah intended, I've decided to pick up the discussion about the timing of the counting of the Omer from my commentary there to Omer Rishit. And I'm, I'm indebted to William F. Dankerbring for the excellent Septuagint references that are going to show up in this next section. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, timing issues that I'm about to refer to, maybe you're just you're just uh, joining us as far as the written or the uh, and or the audio commentaries are concerned. Feel free sometime to go back and listen to my commentary to either Pesach or Omer Rishit. Um, you won't need to listen to the commentary on. Um, on unleavened bread so much because there aren't as many timing issues but Omer Rishit look up that commentary download the audio and or the written and give that a listen I think it's about four parts long okay um, in 1901 the Anglican Bishop Sherard Beaumont Burnaby who was a fellow in the Royal Astronomical Society published a book entitled Elements of the Jewish and Mohammedan Calendars and in chapter 9 of this book, he deals with the Megillat Ta'anit, uh, believed by scholars to have been written in the period uh, 67 through 69 AD, derived from a paper delivered by Rabbi M. Schwab um, in Paris in, in 1897. The origins of this scroll, the, the Megillat Ta'anit, is in Aramaic. Now, the Torah gives us the origins of various Jewish days of observance. Uh, discussing the time of Queen Salome of Alexandria, 
uh, I'm sorry, of Alexandra, circa 79 BC, we read, quote, Nisan 8 through 22. Now, Nisan is the beginning of the months uh, that we find recorded for us in uh, the book of Exodus as well as the book of Leviticus. It's the first of the religious month um, that God uh, told Israel to record. Now, Nisan 8 through 22 recalls the ordinance of the Pharisees that the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, should be celebrated on any day of the week and not be restricted upon the first day of the week, that is, the morrow after the Sabbath. That's how it reads in the text. Uh, Rabbi, Schwab, uh, Rabbi Schwab says, quote, It must be believed that for a certain time, under the Sadducees, the Feast of Pentecost had been celebrated in conformity with their teaching. That is to say, on the morrow after the weekly Sabbath, end quote. Um, Let's continue. Uh, this book, Elements of the Jewish Mohammedan Calendars, on page 263 is which, which I'm reading from. Quote, the commentator says that when the Pharisees came into power, they changed this day to the 50th, counted from the second day of the Passover. In remembrance of their triumph, they celebrated all the, 50, all the 15 days uh, from Nisan 8 to 23. Uh, again, that's from uh, Elements of the Jewish and Mohammedan Calendars, page 263, by uh, Sherard uh, Beaumont Burnaby. Now, we are discussing the timing issues. Who has the right to determine the right calendar? Was it the Pharisees who supposed that the counting of the Omer and the, um, the 50 days that, that uh, followed began um, on the second day, or the first full day of Passover, which would have been the um, day after uh, the Passover feast, which which began on the 15th, actually. The Passover began on the 14th, but the first full day would have been the 15th. Um, thus, uh, we would not have Shavuot ending up on a Sunday because um, Omer Rishit would not have begun on a Sunday, unless the calendar had it fall on a Sunday. But what I mean is it would not have always fallen on a Sunday. Are we to suppose that, this, that the Pharisaic um, uh, counting is correct? Or... Should we opt for the Sadducean uh, calendar, which had fixed the Omer sheet count, the first sheaf, on a Sunday, because they read the phrase on the morrow after the Sabbath as a weekly Sabbath instead of the um, festival Sabbath? You remember, Passover is a Sabbath, and first fruits is a Sabbath. I'm sorry, Passover is a Sabbath, and unleavened bread is a Sabbath, and they took the morrow after the Sabbath. Um, the Sadducees did. They took the word Sabbath there to mean the weekly Sabbath, and thus the Omer Rishit always fell on a Sunday every year, and thus 50 days later, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yes, on the 50th day, on the fifth, uh, uh, you know, after that 49th evening, on the 50th day, uh, Shavuot always commenced on a Sunday as well. So, with what we have to ask ourselves as students is which calendar is correct. I know there is some ambiguity. And surely one of them is right and one of them is wrong. At least that is the mindset. We may just have to wait until Yeshua comes back to figure it out. But what we can do as students is we can look at the evidence, weigh out the texts, um, corroborate the data, and uh, hopefully come to a conclusion. And I've already come to the conclusion, at least for now, that the Pharisaic calendar is accurate. Um, Shavuot does not fall on a Sunday every year. And uh, it can fall on a Sunday, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't fall on a Sunday every year. And that's the calendar I seem to have uh, adopted for now, until more data comes along to change my mind. But when all the evidence is put together, then it becomes increasingly clear, like the shining light of the dawn, 
rising toward midday, I might add, that the Pharisees were in control of the temple and conducted and supervised the temple services, especially and most importantly for our studies, during the time of Yeshua and his uh, uh, apostles, his disciples. It's also clear that Yeshua never reprimanded them, the Pharisees, for observing the ostensible incorrect day, even though he remonstrated against them, uh, he remonstrated, I'm sorry, against them on many other accounts. Remember, Yeshua had quite a few disagreements with the leaders of his day, both Pharisee and Sadducee alike. And so, if he disagreed with the day of the chosen um, Shavuot that the Pharisees were using, who were most, most notably in control of the calendar at that time, then why don't we have any correction coming from the Master? It's difficult to imagine that he would not have lashed out at their error if they were observing Pentecost on the wrong day. That's my whole point in this commentary. In fact, his silence on this issue and his pronouncement that they, the Pharisees, not the Hellenistic Sadducees, sat in the seat of Moses. Remember, he said the scribes and Pharisees um, sit in the seat of Moses. He didn't say the scribes and the Sadducees. And so um, the Pharisees held Mosaic authority in respect to teaching and interpreting the law. Read Matthew 23, verse 2 through 3 to get the uh, reference there. So it should be conclusive based on that passage alone who held the um, influence in the day of Yeshua. Some, however, believe that the Sadducees controlled the temple during the time of Messiah. They believe the Sadducees did. Where do they get their um, assumption? Or where do they get their uh, basis for that? Well, it would appear that this conclusion is based solely upon the fact that, if you'll recall, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol himself, was often a Sadducee. After all, after all the Sadducees were royalty. They were related to the, um, they were blue blood, if I, if I could say that. They were the priestly caste. The, um, the Pharisees, by comparison, were just the common men. They were, they were the politicians, if you were. They were the people's leaders, and the people liked them. The Sadducees were corrupt, and uh, I mean, every leader to an extent had a, an amount of corruption, but um, my point is, the whole political party of the Sadducees seemed to be more corrupt than the Pharisees. At least the Pharisees were teaching Torah. The Sadducees had um, forsaken this particular um, uh, directive. For example, if you remember Caiaphas, the high priest who condemned Yeshua to execution, he was a Sadducee. Read Matthew 26.3 and, and verse 57, as well as John 18.13, John 18.14, John 18.18, and John 18.28. However, as we have seen, the high priest himself, even though he was a Sadducee, he was subject to the directions of the religious-minded Pharisees as to rituals and observances and ceremonies held at the temple. Yes, the Pharisees had that much power. And so the scroll of the Megillat Ta'anit lists the days Nisan 8 through 22 as the days of the Pharisees, uh, I'm sorry, as the days the Pharisees celebrated for their gaining control of the counting of Pentecost, which they did from the second day of Passover. Continuing into my commentary, concerning the matters of the festivals, the Sadducees differed, if you'll recall, from the Pharisees on the figuring of Pentecost, as we've noted. Now, this is just a recall from my previous commentary, just so you'll remember. Hastings points out on page 351 of his book, quote, As to the feasts, the two parties differed in the manner of fixing the date of Pentecost. According to Leviticus 23, verse 11 and verse 15, seven full weeks had to be counted from the morrow after the Sabbath, upon which the priests waved the sheaf of first fruits before the Lord. The Pharisees followed the traditional interpretation, in essence, of the Septuagint, 
um, and you can reference um, Josephus as well, that the Sabbath meant, quote, the first day of the feast, and that consequently Pentecost might fall on any day of the week. The Sadducees, or rather, according to Schur, the Bethusians, which was a variety of the Sadducees, they held that the Sabbath meant the weekly Sabbath. That phrase there, the morrow after the Sabbath, that is the phrase in question. What does the word Sabbath there mean? mean is, is the question that gives rise to two different opinions. Um, so the Sadducees, the Bethusians, held that the Sabbath meant the weekly Sabbath in this verse, and that therefore Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week, end quote. Okay, how are we to um, understand what the phrases are, and, and has history given and demonstrated for us um, maybe a, a more accurate way to understand the passage? Actually, history has. We already looked at the Joshua passage, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to my um, commentary to Omer Rishit, and you'll see what I'm talking about there. But for now, I want to turn to the Septuagint, the LXX. So this next section is entitled, Witness of the Septuagint. Hastings, whom I've just mentioned earlier, mentions that the Septuagint, as being one of the sources showing that the true traditional interpretation of the Sabbath in Leviticus 23, 11, and 15, refers to the first holy day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is, the Passover holy day, when the Passover was eaten, uh, is actually on Nisan 15th. In other words, the phrase, morrow after the Sabbath, commences with the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the first full day after the Sabbath. And we're going to find out that the Septuagint bears this out. Now, what is the Septuagint, for those of you who don't know what that is? Well, uh, briefly put, it's, it, it's commonly referred to as the LXX, which, um, if you'll notice there, the uh, numbers are 50. Um, a reference, I'm sorry, not 50, 70, 70. Uh, the LXX, or the Septuagint, is a reference to the 70 Jewish scholars. Um, there were actually six from each tribe, according to tradition, one from each of the 12 tribes. Thus, they're, they're truly, probably, were really 72 instead of 70. At any rate, um, these were the men who translated the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, from Hebrew into Greek during the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus, approximately 250 B.C. This is, of course, uh, if you'll notice the date, before Yeshua ever came on the scene. This was the official translation of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish court, and the first translation of the Holy Scriptures into a foreign language, I might add. Greek, if you'll recall, was the language of most of the Mediterranean world at that time, and the Egyptian king uh, desired a copy of the famous Jewish law in his world-renowned library at Alexandria, Egypt. This was the first, then, it was the first official, as it were, because there were other um, uh, copies, manuscripts, of the, of the translations of the, of, you know, into other languages and things like that. But this was the first official translation of the Hebrew Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, into Greek. And as such, it was used by Jews throughout the Mediterranean, in synagogues everywhere, and even in Palestine, or even in, in I'm using the word Palestine there, but uh, what, um, what we now know today as the land of Israel. Uh, it, was, it was used by Jews everywhere. And what does the Septuagint say about the calculation of Pentecost? That's what we'd like to find out. Well, I've pulled a um, quote from the Septuagint from an English translation with the Apocrypha. Um, Let's see. Actually, <clears throat> not not a direct quote from just the Septuagint. This is actually a quote from a book I have here. Sorry about that. Let's look at this. Um, let's look what it has to say. Notice the clear voice in this English translation. Right? Quote: 
These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which ye shall call in their seasons. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, between the evening times, in essence during the afternoon of Nisan, fourteenth between noon and sunset, and Josephus goes on to tell us that the lambs were actually slain between three and five o'clock. You can see Josephus, uh, his book called Wars of the Jews, um, book six, chapter nine, paragraph three. Um, anyway, the translation goes on to say, let me go back and pick up the verse again. In the first month on the fourteenth day of the month, this is a quote, by the way, from Exodus. In the first month on the fourteenth day of the month between the evening times uh, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. And the first day shall be a holy convocation to you. Ye shall do no servile work, and ye shall offer whole burnt offerings to the Lord seven days. And on the seventh day shall be a holy convocation to you. Ye shall do no servile work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and, and thou shalt say to them, when ye shall enter into the land which I give you, and reap the harvest of it, then shall you bring a sheaf, the first fruits of your harvest, to the priest, and he shall lift up the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow of the first day the priest shall lift it up. End quote. And then um, jumps down. Um, one more quote here. And ye shall number to yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day on which ye shall offer the sheaf of the heave offering, seven full weeks until the morrow after the last week, ye shall number fifty days." End quote. That's taken from the Septuagint with Apocrypha, Greek and English by Sir Lancelot um, uh, C. L. Brenton, Hendrickson Publishers. Uh, and of course that's referring to, I said it was Exodus, I'm sorry, it's Leviticus 23, 4 through 15. And on the book it's pages 159 through 160. So what does the passage tell us? What is it clearly trying to tell us, really? That the wave sheaf offering was performed by the priest on, quote, the morrow of the first day. And the first day was the first day of the feast. Compare verses 7 and 11, and you'll see that. The first day shall be a holy convocation to you, it says in verse 7. And then in verse 11 it said, on the morrow of the first day. So that phrase, first day, is the... Um, key to understanding uh, when the feast began according to the Septuagint. Now what's also interesting is that Yeshua and the apostles of the early New Testament church um, they often quoted from the Septuagint in their biblical references to the Tanakh. So they must have been familiar with the passages that I just read at least from the Greek one. Now of course they were familiar with the Masoretic text as well, the Hebrew. But um, all you have to do is read the Apostolic Scriptures and you'll see that the Septuagint is clearly in use. <clears throat> As compared to, say, the Septuagint is not used today by, um, uh, by Hebrew-speaking Jewish people the world over. Most Jewish people today do not prefer, in fact, do not even reference or make mention of the Septuagint. To be sure, many Jewish people have um, rejected the Septuagint as an authentic translation in favor of the Masoretic text, which was uh, finally codified centuries later. Um, so it's interesting that the Septuagint is actually an older translation than the Masoretic. However, the uh, I guess it's an older translation, but the Masoretic was finally printed and, and codified and put together um, later on. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon how history plays that out. I'm not saying that one is better than the other, don't get me wrong. I think they are both valuable resources. However, what we do have in world Jewry today 
is reliance upon the Masoretic text instead of reliance upon the Septuagint, and that's simply what I'm trying to the point I'm trying to make. However, many scholars and commentators have remarked on this amazing and undeniable fact about Yeshua and his Talmudim making use of the Septuagint. And it becomes very obvious when comparing biblical quotations in the New Testament Greek language with the Septuagint as opposed to the Masoretic text. Even though the Septuagint does, is not considered authoritative by many Jews and, and by many Christians as well, today it was in fact authoritative in Yeshua's day and we cannot ignore that historical fact. Clearly, therefore, Yeshua and his disciples used the Septuagint many times, and in so doing must have considered the text they used from it authoritative and inspired scripture. Actually, I think Christians do consider it authoritative. We just don't, we don't quote from it as often when we're looking up um, texts from the Tanakh. We, we rather opt for the Masoretic text as well. I might mention... I'm sorry, let me back up. There, there can be no question, therefore, after having read the verses from the Septuagint, there can be no question, therefore, as to the real meaning of Leviticus 23:11 through 15, at least according to um, a cursory reading of the Septuagint, and our, um, our understanding of the historical fact that the Sadducees were not the ones who were determining the calendar days in Yeshua's time. Leviticus 23:11 through 15 it refers to the day after unleavened bread aka Nisan 16 the day after unleavened bread the, after the first full sabbath of unleavened bread so we got passover on the 14th and then we have a first which is really just an evening right they have a meal that begins halfway through the um uh the 14th um you know with with slaughtering of lambs and then we have a commemorative meal that we eat on the on the uh, the evening of the 14th and then um as sun sets we have the 15th which is unleavened bread and then as that first full day passes on the beginning of the f of the 16th which is of course begins when sun sets of the 15th then we have the counting of the omer all right this is just as the pharisees themselves taught and practiced in the days of yeshua now, uh, I might also mention at this point that the King James Version of verse 15 of Leviticus, it, it poorly translates the latter part of this verse. And verse 16, the word Sabbath. Now, it really reads, this is the KJV, it reads, quote, Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the days after the seventh Sabbath, end quote. Seven, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. How do you complete a Sabbath? This poses a whole problem. What does it mean to complete a Sabbath? Or seven of them, for that matter, because it says seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Now, a Sabbath, if you recall, is a whole day from sunset on Friday till sunset on Saturday. That's a Sabbath. Well, and, and by the way, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It is not observed partially, I might add. Sabbaths are not um, part of... You know how we talked about inclusive reckoning, where you can inclusively reckon... Um, like if a king were to come into power in the middle of a day, and then um, the, 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 he, was, he would reign to the end of the day, and then the next day would dawn, the records, the books would show that he reigned for two full days if they were making this record on the second day, because he came to power in the middle of the first day, and then uh, by the second day, even though it wasn't two full 24-hour days, they would say that he reigned for two days. Thus, that's inclusive reckoning. Well, the Sabbath isn't usually... Um, counted within that inclusive reckoning cycle. Judaism today recognizes the Sabbath for its full 24-hour cycle. Um, so, in in that sense, there would be no sense, there would be no need. 
to tell somebody of Yeshua's day to complete a Sabbath is what uh, I'm kind of getting at there. But the Septuagint uses the word week in this place. And so the KJV took the word there, and opt the Hebrew word, and opted for a translation of Sabbaths. Um, but the uh, Septuagint translated that same work, word in the Greek as week. And so in the, in the Septuagint, it doesn't say seven Sabbaths. It actually says, quote, You shall number to yourselves from the day after the Sabbath seven full weeks until the morrow after the last week. You shall number fifty days, end quote. Notice what it just said there, uh, according to the Septuagint, all right? You can complete a week. Notice, you can complete a week. It is seven whole days. A complete week is seven full days, and seven full weeks is a total of 49 days, no partial weeks. You can complete a week. But what we don't break the days down into partial days. We wouldn't really have to say complete a Sabbath. Uh, the sun just kind of rises, uh, the sun sets, and then it, well, how, let me describe it this way. The earth turns around on its axis, okay? The sun doesn't really rise and set. We know that. The earth turns around on its axis in, in one cycle, thus a day goes by. We wouldn't really have to tell somebody to complete a day. But weeks can be different. Uh, we usually do break the weeks down into seven um, sections. Seven days equal one week. So completing a week seems to be more logical um, if we look at the verse that way. Uh, so again, a complete week is seven full days, and, uh, and seven full weeks is a total of 49 days, no partial weeks. The word the King James translates Sabbaths, in this case, ought to be translated as the Septuagint had it, has it, which is weeks. In fact, many modern translations actually translate it as weeks instead of uh, Sabbaths. The Tanakh has this passage. You shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. You must count until the day after the seventh week. So the Septuagint, however, makes this passage perfectly plain by telling us weeks instead of Sabbaths there. Okay. At this point, it's about 30 minutes or so into the commentary, and I'd like to call this part A. And so stay with us. We will continue our commentary to Shavuot at the beginning, uh, I'm sorry, at the top of page 5, where we're going to talk about Shavuot both in the Tanakh time period as well as Shavuot showing up in the book of Acts, okay? Stay with us.